All right. Good morning, all. How we doing? You guys, you guys awake today? All right. Glad to be here. No, 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 no glasses today. We, we don't have to give you guys any eye protection up front. Don't worry. Although, uh, if, if, our, if our fall fest for some reason gets canceled, I will have 300 pumpkins laying around here, so uh, we might have to find some way to use them in a sermon analogy. <laughs> well, this morning, uh, really excited, you guys. We are diving into a new study this morning, a new book, as we have ended 2 Thessalonians. It's interesting because we've been studying the shortest books of the Bible, and we are now about to enter a very, very long study in an uh, amazing book of the Bible. We are going to start today our study in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are going to be taking this morning to do basically an introduction to Hebrews. So I, um, you will hear me say this maybe once every 30 or 40 messages or so. Uh, we won't be in any specific verse this morning in your Bibles because we are going to be doing an introduction because this book demands that we do. We need to understand the context. So you might want to get out your notepads, uh, put on your school caps, and we're going to go to looking at the introduction for the book of Hebrews this morning. But as we do, would you pray with me as we go to God's Word? Lord, we thank you so much that we are here today because of what you have accomplished for us. As we look, Lord, and begin our study in this theologically in-depth, yet very practical book of the Bible that teaches us all about how and why Jesus is better than everything, and how could we ever go back to what we knew before Christ, when we have all that we need in Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this book, our hearts would once again be amazed as we drink in your power and your majesty and your glory. And Lord, that you would illuminate our minds to the truths found here in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us, even this morning, even in our introduction as we study points and principles, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would challenge our hearts and awaken us to your righteousness. We love you, Lord. We invite you here in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you guys have ever got an anonymous letter from anyone. Typically, as a pastor, when you get an anonymous letter, it's not the kind you like, um, I've gotten those. I figure if someone wants to write something nasty to me but doesn't have the courage to sign their name to it, then I'm not going to give it the courtesy of being read. Uh, just so you know that. You're like, nope, you've got to sign your name. But other kind of anonymous letters are great, right? Um, I always get, uh, frequently get anonymous little notes from people just encouraging me, and I, I love it. I, I recently found some anonymous letters that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, one of them was a little post-it on a door. It said, hey, did you guys move? Your Wi-Fi isn't working anymore. I hope it's, I mean, you're okay. <laughs> How about this one? 
please do not drop, drop your cigarette butts on the ground. The cat crawls out at night to smoke them, and we're trying to get him to quit. <laughs> um, how about this one? Please do not feed the pigeons. They do things. Yeah. I like this one a lot. Uh, this was maybe posted uh, on, a, on an apartment complex. Your base, it was, it's called, Your Bass Speakers Are Amazing. Dear neighbor, your car sound system is amazing. It's so loud and the bass is so rocking that it actually shakes all the apartment buildings in the complex. Awesome. This is exceptionally rad when you pull up at 3.30 in the morning and wake up the entire community. Wicked awesome. We are all very impressed with your super cool sound system. Don't even think about turning it down when you pull up to the buildings you share with hundreds of other people. Signed, your envious neighbors. Yeah. Well... Of all the anonymous letters that are out there, there is one that outweighs them all in importance and in power and in truth, and it is the book of Hebrews. Of course, Hebrews is anonymous in the sense, not in the sense that we don't know who inspired it, because we know that the whole word of God is inspired and written by the Holy Spirit. But its human author to this day remains anonymous. Now, there are some educated guesses as we look into the authorship of Hebrews. I personally believe that the Apostle Paul did write it. There's hundreds of years of church history that believes that same truth and some of the theological content, the structure of the letter, even Paul's, uh, the, the final greeting or the final outro of the letter matches Paul's style uh, in depth. And yet, there are others that believe that it was written by many different people, Interestingly enough, Acts chapter 17, verse 1, reveals to us a pattern in Paul's ministry. We read there that when they had passed through Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, this is Paul and his crew, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into uh, to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, why do I mention this, uh, this incident of Paul's? Because it was Paul's pattern, even though God called him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul had a heart for the, his, the Jews, his own people. Paul would go wherever he went, he would find a synagogue, and he would reason with the Jews from the Old Testament passages the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Why do I bring that up? Because that is the pattern that the book of Hebrews follows. The book of Hebrews digs back into the Old Testament, specifically mainly Genesis through Deuteronomy, and revealing through the Old Covenant the picture of Jesus. And the author compares and contrasts the Old Covenant that was under the law and Moses and even going pre-law to Abraham and Melchizedek, that Jesus supersedes that which had come before. That in Christ, all the pictures and all the prophecies and all the imagery of the Old Testament was coming to pass in the person of Jesus. Much like the book of Romans, Paul establishes a firm doctrinal foundation of justification by faith in the book of Romans. Hebrews establishes the firm doctrinal foundation of the superiority of Jesus as the bedrock of our salvation. That's why I'm entitling this whole series in Hebrews, Jesus is Better. Now, we want to talk a minute about the audience of this letter that uh, Paul or some, some people believe Peter wrote it, some people believe 
Uh, one of Paul's assistants wrote it. Maybe Apollos wrote it. We don't know for sure. I believe Paul wrote it. But the audience is important to understand. There are things that we will read in the book of Hebrews. Uh, some have rightfully said that to our modern day mind, Western mind, the book of Hebrews contains some of the most difficult passages for us to understand. And part of the reason for that is because we aren't uh, in the same mindset necessarily as Paul's audience was back then. Bible scholar William Lane uh, describes the potential audience as written here in the book of Hebrews. He writes that the social and religious roots of this specific community to which Hebrews was being written are almost certainly be traced to the Jewish quarters and to the participation in the life of a Hellenistic synagogue. Most scholars agree that the book of Hebrews, as, as we have titled it, has, was written to Jewish, formerly Jewish, Jew, Jew, uh, uh, Jewish Christians that were living in the capital of Judaism, Jerusalem. By the language, it's clear that the audience that he's writing to has an in-depth working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Covenant. Whereas many of us today might not have that same working knowledge or that same understanding, so certain passages is going to take us a little bit more to dig into. The author doesn't spend a lot of time establishing context for what he says because he knows his audience is going to understand it anyway. So we are going to spend a lot more time understanding uh, and establishing the context of the letter or the verses that we read, which is why we're going to kind of take it slower than I normally would as we dive into chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Another important con contextual nugget to understand is during the time that this letter is written, two Christians who had come out of Judaism, they were under pressure, especially if they lived in Jerusalem. And the pressure and the persecution came from three specific sources. First of all, the Jewish establishment or the Jewish elite, the hierarchy of, 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 of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they hated the Christians because the Christians were challenging their scope and their level of authority. They were basically saying, we, we were Jews, but we found something better, and his name is Jesus. And boy, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they hated Jesus. They hated everything they had to do with Jesus because Jesus was the one who threatened their sense of authority, who threatened their tradition, who threatened their religious, man-made religious traditions that they had created. And so they were there and they were, of course, persecuting and seeking to blot out this new sect of Jesus' followers, we see this represented in Saul before he came, became the Apostle Paul. He was on a mission to arrest and persecute those who followed the way or Jesus Christ. As one author observes, at the time Hebrews was written, the temple was still standing, sacrifices were still being offered, feast days were still being observed, and the religion of Judaism was at its zenith. You see, Jews who received Jesus were being ostracized for their, from their families, kicked out of their communities. 
They would have been jeered at. You know, who would ever leave the security of Judaism to follow some Galilean country preacher who was crucified by the Romans? It costs a lot for an ancient Jew, first century Jew, to follow Jesus. It costs them everything. It's still like this today in many parts of the world, by the way. You know, I, I, when, I, when I traveled to India, I used to go to India quite frequently. And when they, when India, when they, when the church there had a baptism, it was like a big deal. Every, I mean, a big deal because it wasn't when a person went forward or prayed a prayer that really was the proof in the pudding, so to speak, of their conversion. It was when they got baptized. Because if you're in India, which is largely Muslim and Hindu, and you come from a Hindu family or a Muslim family, and you get baptized publicly in front of people, that pretty much is the end of all other relationships, of all other ties, of all other acceptance. You are now in the church. You are part of that family. You are part of Christ. And, and everything else is now risked. And that's how it was for this audience that Hebrews is written to. And we'll talk to you why, why that's so important in a minute. But also there was persecution coming from the Romans. The Romans had started ramping up their persecution um, between about 49 and 80 AD against the church. And on top of that, Paul tells us that there were people infiltrating the church, false prophets. He called them, uh, they're, they're entitled Judaizers or those who infiltrated the church and they were basically telling the church, yeah, okay, Jesus is fine, but there, you have to have Jesus plus other things, plus keeping the law, plus being circumcised, plus remaining in the Jewish tradition if you really want to be saved. And so there are all forms of persecution coming both from without and within the church. And here's the temptation that the book of Hebrews specifically addresses. Hebrews is is, I'll just say Paul, because that's what I'm going to establish as the author. Hebrews is Paul's way of looking at former Jews who came to Christ and who are now paying the price of following Jesus and who are being tempted by their family members and by the religious leaders and by the Jewish community saying, what are you guys doing? Why don't you give up Jesus and come back to what you know? Why don't you come back to the safety blanket, so to speak, of Judaism? Why don't you come back to what is established? Why don't you come back to what is safe? Why don't you forget about Jesus and come back and move back into Judaism? And here Hebrews is an argument as to why you can't go back. You can't turn around. You can't give in to the temptation that something better than Jesus exists. Hebrews is more than a passionate opinion column. It's a biblical, logical, well-thought-through theological argument for the superiority of Jesus to everything in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. Hebrews is divided into two main portions and many subcategories under that. The first 10 chapters are theological, a lot of theological depth in Hebrews, a lot to dive into in regards to the person and the work of Jesus. And then the, finally, the last three chapters, as it's typical in, in Paul's writing style, are very practical. How, do, how does all this truth impact the way we ought to live? I could say that the first ten chapters communicates the answer to why and what Jesus is better than. And the last three chapters communicate because Jesus is better than everything else, 
we better stick with him. We better stick with Christ. Like I said, the first 10 chapters will break down something like this. When we make the statement, Jesus is better, well, what's he better than? Paul would lay out in the first 10 chapters that number one, Jesus is better than the prophets of old who's, who God spoke through. That Jesus is better. Jesus is, God's voice now comes through the person and the work of Jesus. That Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter two, we'll see that Jesus is better than death and the devil. That Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter four, Jesus is the better Sabbath. In chapters five through eight, he's better than the Levitical priesthood. In chapter seven, that Jesus is better than Abraham and Melchizedek. In chapters eight and nine, that Jesus is better than the old covenant. And in chapters nine and 10, Jesus is the better sacrifice, being better than the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Basically, what we could say is in the book of Hebrews, God took the foundations of Judaism and he replaced them with faith in Jesus, saying all these foundations of Judaism were all pointing to faith in Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the law and the prophets and everything else that God gave us. Now to us Gentiles and Americans, these things might seem so distant and foreign and irrelevant. I, I might even have some of you already checking out of like, oh boy, what does this have to do with me? But to the audience of the Jewish believers that the author was writing to, it was everything. It was everything. It was the, the difference between them continuing with Christ and falling off the map back into the law, coming under the yoke of bondage. And Hebrews declares to us that Jesus overcame the, the impossible demands of the law and of religion, and he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that we could not, and he made a way to God for every human being through his sacrifice. But let me suggest to you that even to the majority of us today, uh, trust me when I say this, there is a lot in Hebrews for you. So much practical application for us today. Why? Because, because there's some of us here being tempted to revert back to Judaism? Probably not. <laughs> if I was to do a raise, how many of you guys are tempted to become Jews apart from Jesus? Probably not many people would say yes. Maybe, maybe there might be one or two. But can I say that the core temptations and the core persecutions that they were experiencing back then to try to get them to depart from Christ still exists today in different, wearing different masks, clothed in different forms, because there is still a temptation and still a pull from the world and from the devil and even from the flesh for the Christian to depart from the foundation of Jesus Christ being their core, their everything. I would say that the book of Hebrews confronts, confronts three areas, excuse me, of temptation that the Jewish believers were facing, and these temptations were designed to make them question the validity of their faith in Christ and whether or not their commitment to him was worth it. That was the core of the temptation. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And is your faith really valid? And I would suggest that if I could break those three areas down to us today, 
The temptation looked like this, a form of three questions. Number one, is there something other than Jesus? Number two, is there something better than Jesus? And number three, is there something easier than Jesus? And that's what the Judaizers and the Jews were, were tempting this audience with. Hey, you guys, there's something other. There's, another, there's other ways than being so narrow-minded with Jesus. And, and there are, there's something better than Jesus. And there's something easier than Jesus. So why would you want to stick with Jesus? Let's look at these three themes in Hebrews a little more closely. Number one, addressing the statement there is something other than Jesus or another way than Jesus. I believe Hebrews deals with the arguments as some who were persecuting the Christians would criticize them and say, why do you need Jesus anyway when we have Abraham and Moses and the law and angels and the prophets and our traditions? Why would you need Jesus when we have security and identity in the old covenant? The answer, well, of course, the author will try to build the case for the fact, why do you need Jesus? Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all those things. Unlike those other things, Jesus is the pinnacle, the crowning point of all time and eternity. Why don't we need other things than when we found Jesus? Because Jesus is better than everything else. It's kind of like what happens when you finally get your first Apple product. You know, years of Samsung and trying to run complicated buggy versions of Windows. And then you buy an Apple product, and all of a sudden it's like, I don't need any other of these things. Any, any, no? Okay, no one's following me. Never mind. Okay, think of it like this. This is a much better analogy. A foster child goes through the system, they call it, from house to house, from guardian to guardian. And then one day they're adopted into a family. They have a mom and they have a dad. And all of a sudden they don't need the previous system, foster system any longer because the better thing had come. They don't need any other guardians anymore because now they have a family, a mom and dad. And that's the argument Paul would make for Christ. The law, the old covenant, it was merely, well, he would tell the Galatians in chapter 3, it, the law was a tutor, an instructor to lead you to the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus the law, the, the, the old covenant wasn't your family, wasn't your identity. Jesus is the identity. He's a treasure at the end of the X. He's the destination at the end of the map. He's the gold at the end of the rainbow, however you want to say it. He's the main attraction at the end of the line. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that we've been looking for. And yet we still live in a world today, don't we, that says... You don't need to surrender and submit to Jesus. There are other ways. How can you be part of that narrow-minded, uneducated, unenlightened, archaic society that says we only need Jesus? Jesus is the only way. After all, isn't Jesus sort of an antiquated belief system? Get with it, folks. 
We've come far beyond this irrelevant form and need for religion and barbaric thinking. Jesus, yeah, he was an okay guy. He was an old school thinker. But now, 2,000 years have gone by. We know more about humanity now. We're smarter. We're wiser. I mean, we have The View and CNN and Taylor Swift and Bill Nye the Science Guy. Why on earth would we need Jesus? Come on. We have philosophy, we have science, we have education, we have the internet, and we have really smart people. We can build a city that reaches up to the heavens. You guys, there's nothing new under the sun. People have always thought that there's some other way to achieve what they've always wanted other than through the way that God has provided. And it's a It's a temptation that is appealing, especially to our younger generation. When all they hear in the world around them and the schools they go to, you can can have another way. You don't need Jesus. All you Christians are still here said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through, okay. What happens when the believer starts to think, yeah, you know, why would I only believe in Jesus? I mean, Jesus does seem pretty narrow and intolerant in this inclusive society that we live in, in this enlightened world. I mean, what does it hurt if Jesus just becomes a little piece of my broader thinking, my smorgasbord of spirituality and religion and experiences? See, Hebrews addresses this thinking. He goes through argument after argument after argument that we're all going to get into as to why Jesus is the only way. There is no other. I know for me, I've done my own research and studying through. I've, ha- I've asked the hard questions throughout my own life. I, there are things I don't understand about God and a lot of things I'm still learning about his word But for me, and I think I could probably speak for many in this room, over a good portion of my lifetime and being honest with God, trying to be honest with myself and others, I have not found anything or anyone that comes close to the person of Jesus. I look at the world and the direction it's headed and the promises that it makes and what it actually delivers, and I think, really? There's nothing there. It's empty, it's lost, it's broken. And after seeing and knowing Jesus through the lens of being born again, I am thoroughly convinced that there is nothing better than him and no one truer than him. For me, until the day I die, it will be Jesus and only Jesus. That's, that's what I become convinced of in my own heart and my mind. He has revealed himself to me in undeniable ways, He has demonstrated to me his power and that he's risen from the dead and is alive forevermore. He's changed my life. He's opened my mind. He's divinely carried me through every season of life. He's helped me know myself for who I truly am. He's comforted me in my pain. He's provided for me in my need. He's strengthened me in my weakness. And that has not come from within myself. And I have had in-depth conversations with Muslims 
and Jews and Hindus and Mormons and atheists and agnostics and witches and some people I couldn't even probably identify because they're a bunch of, di- you know, a bunch of different things. I've, I've talked to a lot of people in my life. And every time I've gone away brokenhearted because all the things that they're so desperately seeking and wanting in their life, I've already found it in Christ. I'm thinking, you guys, if you only knew. Peace with God, that's what Jesus gives. Forgiveness from freedom, from shame and guilt and sin, that's what Jesus gives. Understanding your purpose for being alive, that's what Jesus gives. Contentment and satisfaction in this life, Peace and uncertainty, courage in the midst of fear. That's what Jesus gives. And yet it's an age-old lie of the devil still. There is something other than Jesus. Some, some other pinnacle to reach, some other thing to achieve, some other... Which leads me to the second argument here in that there is something better than Jesus. That's, a, that's the other age-old temptation. There's something better than Jesus. Would you agree with me that, if we're all very honest, human beings rarely find contentment in this life? I mean, literally. People who have nothing to people who have everything end up dying wishing that they had something, something else that they're missing. I mean, when we, when we get something new, I think this is this tendency I think we all have, right? When we get something new, how long does it take before you want the upgraded version? The newer version. Do you think it's somehow a fluke that Amazon.com is the fourth largest, most visited website in the world, only falling to Google and YouTube and Facebook? I mean, people want new stuff. They always want something new. They always want something better. In fact, statistically, it's a fact that over 50% of people that start at one church will want a new church in three to five years. 50%, right? We just want something new. CNN article I read this week, and I don't encourage you reading too many of those, but uh, stated that over 50% of Americans have changed religions in their lifetime, right? It's always looking. You see, people always are looking for something to make their life a little better. I think there's a lot of people that see Jesus as they approach Jesus as like an option. Maybe if I add a little bit of Jesus in my life, my life can be better. And then if things don't go the way that they want, they kind of get rid of Jesus and try to find that next thing, that next thing. Now, of course, they aren't truly embracing Jesus, but they're constantly on that search for something better. Oh, Jesus just doesn't really do it for me like he used to. I've heard that said before. And this is why a major theme in Hebrews is steadfastness, faithfulness, and endurance in Christ. Look at these three verses only. Consider the Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we what? Drift away. Don't go looking for something better. Hebrews 3.14, we are to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Hebrews 6.11, each one of you show the same diligence 
to the full assurance of hope until the end. Endure. Don't fall for the belief that, that, that there's something better out there than what you have in Christ. This is what the prodigal son believed. And we've talked about it, I feel, frequently, but it's a great story. That the, the prodigal son believed that there was something better outside of his father's house and had to go through a lot of pain and loss to come to the realization that everything he needed was already in his father's house. There's nothing out there that's better than Jesus. King Solomon wrote an entire book, Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, about all his pursuits that he said were under the sun. And that term just means uh, in this temporal world. His conclusion, that nothing is new in this life. Nothing is new under the sun. It's all cyclical. It just keeps repeating itself. And then he goes on to write about all the things that he sought. I, I, I sought and I looked for pleasure and fulfillment in everything. Education, women, riches, delicacies of every kind. He said, I did not withhold anything from myself that would give me pleasure, Solomon says. And at the very end of everything, what does he say? As an old man, having accomplished everything, pursued everything, had everything this world has to offer. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. He said, it's all nothing. Unless you know God. I love David's cry in Psalm 63. He says, because your love is better than life. My lips shall praise you. There is nothing out there better than Jesus. Third trap is to be convinced that there is something easier than Jesus. Hebrews deals with this as well. There is something easier than Jesus. Now, this is a point that actually comes with a deceptive partial truth. For the short term, it can appear that life apart from Jesus is easier. But it is a dangerous and deceptive kind of ease. Life without following Jesus may seem easy at the beginning, but it will prove much more difficult at the end. See, the temptation for the Hebrew Christians, the audience that Paul was writing to, was that returning to Judaism would be the easier route than sticking with Jesus. No persecution, no personal sacrifice, no martyrdom, no loss of family and friends. Be in a place that you know is safe and that you understand. You won't have to expand or grow or change. You won't have to give up your dreams or ambitions. You can just take the easy route and be okay. Why would you want to follow Jesus when you could do something so much less difficult in life. Well, we're not going to lie. Jesus never promised us that following him was easy, but he did promise us that it's the only path that is the right one and ultimately the best one. Jesus was very clear when he said in Matthew chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice Jesus points out that the easy way at the beginning is a harder way at the end. And the harder way at the beginning is the, not the easier way at the end, but the most rewarding way at the end. Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? These 40 days he was in the wilderness and the, and the enemy came to him. And we have recorded several specific temptations. And when I read these, I saw that the core of the temptations that, the, that Satan presented to Jesus was trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. Why would you trust your father's provision when you can just turn the stones into bread now? Why trust the Father's plan when you could just jump off the temple in front of everyone, show off your divine power, and you could get it all now? Why trust your Father's timing when you could just compromise a little right now and bow down to me, and I can give you your kingdom now? Don't trust God's provision. Don't trust God's protection. Don't trust God's timing. Just take it into your own hands and take the easy way out now. That's the temptation. Take the easy way out. Don't walk a life of faith. Don't trust God. Don't believe in the things yet unseen. Take the easy way out. And this is why Hebrews 12, you might want to turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read it. One of the most famous verses is in, uh, verses in Hebrews. Hebrews 12:1 says, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. William Lane, again, he writes about the audience. He said, the intended audience of Hebrews was experiencing a crisis of faith and a failure of nerve. I love that. In other words, the Hebrews, the, the Jewish Christians' response to the difficulty of following Jesus was to run and to hide and to avoid and to conceal and to revert and to go back. When things got tough with Jesus, they receded. They went back. They shrunk back in fear. They gave into the intimidation. They gave into the oppression and the persecution. Things are getting hard with Jesus. Let's go back to what's easy. Yet the call of the book of the Hebrews to the Christian is that when things get tough in following Jesus, you rise up, you face the challenge, you have faith, you don't look back, you don't, you don't back down, you engage, you don't avoid, you fight, you don't surrender, you impact, you don't isolate. That's what it means 
to follow Jesus. You might remember when the teachings of Jesus started to get, get offensive to those who were kind of in for the, the treat. Oh, we all like that Jesus heals, and we all like that Jesus feeds, and we all like that Jesus kind of wows us with his miracles. But then once Jesus starts saying hard things, like you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and pick up your cross and be crucified and follow me, and if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of the kingdom, and all these things, and then all the people are like, whoa, wait a minute. I was good with the miracle worker. I was good with the flash. I was good with the entertainment. But I'm not good with discipleship. I'm not good with what it actually means for me to not be the Lord and King of my life, and my life is now submitted to another. And Jesus, you might remember at one point in time when many of them were walked with him no more, John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. From that time we read, many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Phillips Brooks, in one of his sermons, wrote these powerful words. He said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Every day you shall wonder at yourself, at the riches, richness of life which has come to you by the grace of God. I think that for many people living in this culture, in this society up to this point, following Jesus in America has been fairly easy. It's been fairly free of ridicule. It's been culturally accepted. So you might not Feel the courage to put your Bible on your desk at work. As one pastor I heard recently say that, I thought that was a good way to put it. Of course, there's Christians all over the world today that are suffering in places of difficulty, persecution and suffering. But as we've been reminded over this past couple years, Let's not forget that Paul said, whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I believe that we will see a time, I mean, we're seeing things in our lifetime that I, probably many of you who have lived, long enough, lived a bit a little longer never thought you'd see, right? <laughs> in your lifetime. We're looking at nations that we thought were free, you know. I'm not talking about Pakistan and Iran and North Korea. We're talking about Canada and Australia. <laughs> We're talking about pastors being arrested and churches being forbidden to meet. I think, I think the lines are going to be drawn pretty quickly in the days to come. 
between those who are following Jesus at a distance from what they can get out of him and those who are following Jesus because they have realized he is the only way. There is no other. He's the only truth. There is no better. He's the only life. There is no easier. I have a stronger sense than ever before that the Holy Spirit is about to move in a major way. And those who have their sails up and their ships ready are going to experience something very powerful from God. But those who are anchored in the world and I refuse to lift that anchor, man, it could get ugly. It wouldn't surprise me that as persecution increases, the power increases, as temptation increases, victory increases for so many people. But there are dividing lines in our nation. And there will be a real challenge in the days to come for those who call themselves Christians. When things get hard, will they look for something other? Will they look for something better? Will they look for something easier? Or will they stay the course? Will they fix their eyes on Jesus? I don't know if it's my paranoia. (laughs) I like to think that I as you do, the Lord speaks to me and that I've learned how to hear his voice. And I I woke up in a cold sweat about four or five nights ago with just these words resonating in my mind and in my spirit. Are you ready? We don't know what tomorrow holds. You think you do. Many of us have lived our lives in such a way that has convinced us that we know, that we have it all under control, that we have everything, all our ducks in a row. But if society crashes tomorrow, if the bank accounts drain tomorrow, if the whole internet goes offline and we're cyber attacked, if a nuclear bomb goes off in the middle, if the super volcano erupts, whatever, I want to get you all, you know, starting Google, oh, end of the world, what's up, if COVID-22 strikes us. Are, are you ready? Well, I think I, got my, I think I got my rations and I think I got my... No, 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 no. Are you ready to keep following Jesus? I, I think and I'm convinced when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do they light a lamp to put it under a basket, but they place it on a lampstand for all to see. 
Therefore, so let your light shine before men. The progression of that is really interesting to me because Jesus didn't say, you need to become the light of the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. I've already, God says, I've already taken you as my church, as my, as my follower, and I've, I've set you aflame. And I put you, I place you on a hill that's on top of, above everything else to be seen. I've set you on a candle stand, on a lamp stand. Not, I didn't put you under a basket. I put you on a lamp stand so you can be seen. That's what I've done. That's what you are. But then he says to us, so let. I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit. That I have the free will and the ability, if I wanted to, to shroud and hide something that God has set aflame. There is coming a time in this world, take my word for it or don't. I know what the Bible teaches. I believe that there is coming a time very soon in this nation where the church is going to have to take its rightful place above the world on the hill, above the world on the lampstand, so that when all the things the world has been trusting in crumbles at their feet, they can look at the top of the hill and there's still a light shining in the darkness and it's the church of Jesus Christ. There are people who are ready we clap, but I, I, I want to know if we're ready. Are you ready to sell what you have so you can provide something for another brother or sister who has nothing? Are you ready to give up your hopes and dreams and ambitions and comforts and securities in this life? To be part of something bigger God is doing? Are you ready to be mocked at and jeered and persecuted? And have your properties taken and your rights stolen? And still say, I will still gather and I will still preach and I will still love and I will still give and I will still speak. I don't know why that's, again... It's either my paranoia or God's preparing his church. I think God is preparing his church. I think he's been doing that. At any rate, the book of Hebrews is going to be a feast for us. So we look at and get our eyes back on Jesus above everything. He's the answer. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this book. I know today was just a lot of overview and a lot of context and so on, important stuff, but I can't wait, Lord. I can't wait to dive into your word. Your word is what has the power, not, not my words. And so, Lord, we look forward to these coming weeks, uh, Lord, that, that we have, you know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know ne what next week holds, but... As you will, Lord, we submit to you and we look forward to being together in this powerful book 
And Lord, I just pray that, Lord Jesus, you reveal yourself to us in ways that we have maybe failed to see you in the past or haven't seen you yet up to this point or, or that we have and we just have kind of forgotten as we've gone about our lives and our living. And Lord, I do pray that if there are any here today who don't know you, who have not made a decision to follow you, Lord, it might sound a fearful thing. I don't know if I want this Jesus. But the reality is, God, you have made it clear that you are the safest place for us to be. Lord, who else has the words of eternal life? Who else has given us and made us right with God? Who, who else has promised us heaven? There is none other, Lord. There's none better. There's none easier. You are the one that we want. And give us hearts to follow you and give us resolve in our commitment to you, Lord. Help us be preparing and asking ourselves the hard questions in these days about what we're willing to endure and sacrifice for the sake of our commitment to you. That when the shaking comes, when the temptations come, that we will be rooted and grounded firmly and steadfastly, anchored in Christ. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys, and uh, unless you hear otherwise, hope to see you this afternoon at our Fall Fest, and we'll certainly see you uh, in the days to come. God bless you.